0: Well, hi neighbour. Hello there. Just going back to my old faithful um, opening. hi ho where you just sound like a maniac. Or are we supposed to say, well, hello? Because then that, that way Gwen can
1: vlog yeah, some doormats. you got yourself into a real tangle about that. What about the doormats? The doormats <laughs> just make me laugh and laugh. Because when Gwen said, wouldn't it be fun to have doormats that said, well, hello? And I think both of us just sort of went, oh, yeah, yeah, Gweny- yeah hilarious. Next thing you know... <laughs> She's found this woman in Perth who makes doormats and she's rung her up and said, look, I'll have uh, as many as you can make. This woman, mildly shaken, says, serious.
0: And, of course, that is indeed what happens. Don't you think it's amazing, like, some people's competence? Like, I would say I've got some very competent friends, but pound for pound, Gwen Blake is my most competent friend. Um, I would put her in charge of the vaccine rollout. Oh, totally.
1: You'd have none of the nonsense. You really wouldn't.
0: Every time something is badly organised around any of that, I do think they need like a Gwen brain running it. Like one of those people that's able, my executive producer, Justin, has the same brain. It's like they can see a lot of moving parts in one go and preempt where, you know, bottlenecks and things are going to happen and just smooth it over. I reckon Madeline has that as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's like that. Whereas
1: I would be like, if you asked me to organise um, doormats. First of all, I'd fluff around doing stupid Google searches for about three <laughs> days, and then I'd have a panic attack about like how to you know process it all and how would I get them sent out, and I'd spend a stupid amount of money paying people to do things that you know could have been done more efficiently. And in the end, I'd be
0: it would take me a month, and at the end of it, I'd be in treatment. See, I don't reckon I'd even start it because it wouldn't interest me. So I would just, so if Gwen gave me a task like, hey, Salesy, can you go and um, pick apart every song on the Abbey Road album? No worries. I'd get that done massively efficiently. If she said, can you go and organise some doormats? I'd be like, no, I don't want to. (laughs) No. I just would never do it. Um, Hey, you used the words in treatment, which reminded me of a few things. I'm in this bizarre psychoanalysis rabbit hole, which was sort of sparked by the death of Janet Malcolm, the American writer. Wow. Uh, that just feels like the end of a giant era,
1: the it does. end of Janet yeah. Malcolm's life.
0: Well, Janet Malcolm, most journalists would have heard of Janet Malcolm because she wrote a book called The Journalist and the Murderer. And if you're of our era yeah. where you, journalism shifted from being a trade to a profession and you went to university, reading The Journalist and the Murderer, and I remember we had to do an assignment on it, it was sort of a core part of the degree. Um, the book is about... Uh, Her analysis of a book called Fatal Vision by a writer called Joe McGuinness where he uh, got – fly on the wall access to a defendant in a murder case and then he wrote this book where he basically threw the guy under a bus and said I just believe that he did it anyway.
1: Yeah he signed up to a kind of like an agreement to share profits on the book with the guy and he was given absolutely unqualified access to the defence and became friends with the defendant and then creepily like over the period of the trial started thinking oh my god I actually think that he, he did it <laughs> and then wrote the book still lying to the defendant saying you know of course you're innocent, dude." Oh, and you friend right behind you turns out like about 5k behind you like on the dick cavett show calling him a killer and so and i mean look this is one of my favorite little knots of writing it's so full of um bizarre intrigue um and he i mean the, the book itself fatal vision is worth a read the whole case is um just a bizarre one um but then he ended up getting sued by the defendant who was convicted and sued him for sort of like breach of contract really, like sort of fraud, having agreed to write a book about him being not guilty and then sprung this surprise. Like he never told the murderer until he started doing publicity for the book what the conclusion of the book was. So you can imagine um, the dude's surprise in his prison cell. But Janet Malcolm in her kind of fiendish way um, then decided to write a book about the whole thing and you know you're right about journalists who um <laughs> have all read that book because they remember it for its absolutely scorching first line which i paraphrase here but it's something like
0: i'm googling it oh as you speak, are yes, okay well I'm i'll keep go- padding while go- you find yeah, it because it, it. it's,
1: it's i mean her phrasing is much more devastating yeah, than mine would yeah, ever, that's ever right be but, but i
0: was <laughs> madly sort of typing and getting constant errors um okay this is um this is it Every journalist who is not too stupid or full of himself to notice what's going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is a kind of confidence man preying on people's vanity, ignorance or loneliness, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse. Yeah. It's... Um, uh so she, ba- the premise of the book basically is just looking at the relationships between journalists and sources and yep. the fact that it's an unequal relationship because you as the journalist are trying to make people trust you and tell you things mm-hmm. and they're giving you this information and then you're doing with it what you want and often you're positioning it in the context of what other people are saying or you're judging them as they're talking and yep. so they think you're on their side but actually you're often either neutral or you're, you know, you're always supposed to be neutral or in some cases, like say the Joe McGuinness example, you're actively working against the person. So um, anyway, so she wrote this very, very famous book. And I realised when she died, I mean, she she was very influential in American journalism and particularly that book. I realised that I'd read... a lot of say articles she'd written for the New Yorker, mm, mm-hmm. but I hadn't read anything other than *The Journalist and the Murderer*. So I did a quick sort of search to see what else she'd written, and she'd written this book called *Psychoanalysis: The Impossible Profession*. Right? Yeah. Um Have you read it?
1: Um, no, I've read another book of hers called *In the Freud Archives*, which is great. Oh, oh, yeah. oh she's got mm. another one in that. Oh, there's there's a whole series. Like she's her interest is eclectic and fascinating. Like she's got. Um, a real kind of spread of, of
0: but, must but psychoanalysis fascinated. is
1: very much. You know, oh, that's interesting. Yeah.
0: It's quite a strange, I'm about three quarters of the way through it. It's a quite strange book, actually, because it seems a bit, to me, <laughs> structureless. Right. Uh, I guess maybe a bit like therapy, where she's sort of meandering around lots of different thoughts and ideas, but it centres around this one psychotherapist in particular who she goes every week for an hour and she interviews him about his profession and then she's padding it out with sort of bits of the history of psychoanalysis and Mm. Freud and all of the rest Mm. of it. It it sounds almost like cult-like. She's making it sound like a cult, Right. right. Anyway, it's quite odd. But then that led me into rewatching a show that I absolutely adored. Well, can I just ago. can I just quickly yes, just yes. um
1: shove one thing in before yes. we move on from Janet? Um, one is that the New Yorker when she died ran this fantastic collection of Janet Malcolm remembered by writers like oh, yeah. from, by her colleagues at the New Yorker and like there are some I urge you to read it because I think you will find it absolutely fascinating. And in in one sense this collection answers a little bit of your observation about that book because one of her colleagues remembers she just simply, if she got to a bit of a book that she was read writing, you know, an area that didn't interest her, she simply excluded it. Like she just, oh. you know, she just didn't tangle with bits of this sort of the landscape in which she was not interested. Oh. And so um, that might be the key. I mean, a, a, a hint as to the sort of odd structure of of that book. Um, There was also another bit from another writer that I'm sure you would love um, where the writer invited her to attend something and she's just responded with the most incredibly, (laughs) brilliantly blunt, you know, it's basically, um, thank you so much um, for the invitation, but I don't want to. Thank you. Brilliant. (laughs) Absolutely I mean, superb. (laughs) Um, I will also just add by way of... um, personal self-aggrandisement and um, interest that, I met Joe McGinnis, the guy who yes. wrote Fatal Vision, um, when I went to America in 2011. He was at that time um, writing a an unauthorized biography of Sarah Palin, who had moved in or he, he moved in next to her house, oh. like rented the house next to her. Oh. I know. So like his his methods. Are, you so know. Did,
0: did she? Was it an authorized biography, or he no. just did that? He oh just my moved, God. yeah, right. Wow. And
1: she was obviously highly pissed off about this. Um, I will also mention that his first book. Called the Selling of the President. Oh, yeah, it's an account of the um, Nixon campaign. You know, the first campaign in which a presidential candidate used an advertising company, and he basically went in and knocked on the door as a 22-year-old journo to, at the advertising firm, and they went, "Oh, who? You? Yeah, fine, you're a nobody. Sit in." And then eventually, just sat in on all of these sort of high-level yeah. meetings, and then pooped out this book, which was a massive surprise to the yeah, Nixon campaign. That's
0: one of the most famous political insider political campaign. It's books a spectacular of history. book, and it
1: really like it, it. It stands the test of time. Anyway, he met Janet Malcolm just once because when she started writing the journalist and the murderer he wasn't ent- like he knew that she was suspicious about his role and disapproving but he said that He invited her around, like agreed to an interview, but then um, stopped it after several minutes
0: (laughs) because he... After she was like, what do you make of my idea that any journalist not too full of himself (laughs) or stupid to know is...
1: And I always remember what he said to me um, about that meeting. He said, she was like a scorpion in a bottle. Oh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But I
1: thought, like, you know, she's right about journalism in the sense that, like, if you're interviewing someone who's an extremist, right, and they, they open with, you know, you want them to tell you, you know, stuff, and they start off with, well, as you know, you know, the Holocaust was a fraud. I mean there are circumstances where you've got to just button your lip and kind of of allow them to, you know, think that you find that unremarkable or whatever just so that you can keep the conversation going. Um, Whereas obviously McGuinness, who immediately asked Janet Malcolm to leave his house, you know, that wasn't her technique at all. She's just like, you know, well, I I think you're a fraud, so let's talk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you would have talked about this before, Mm. um... Just the different ways that journalists in interviews get people to open up and tell them stuff. Mm, And, like, mm. um, so going in there in that kind of a manner, I mean, look... I don't know, I, I personally would think, well, that's not going to get somebody to open up. But it might if the person was particularly argumentative and liked a bit of conflict. Yep. So if you were interviewing somebody of that ilk, you know, maybe they would. And Joe McGuinness, I would suggest from his history, possibly is that kind of a personality, although he did throw her out. So. But then there's also um, there's the people who I've read about Joan Didion, the writer, that she basically says nothing. And so it becomes extremely awkward because right. of her amount of silence. And yeah. So the person is just blabbing everything oh, because God. Joan Didion's making them the power the size power size um, there's people who uh, I know but I won't name, who, whose manner <laughs> but let's like, call them <laughs> <laughs> whose manner is like the police, right. where they're quite intimidating in their manner right. and make you feel like you have to tell them yeah. um, things. And then I would say that what I rely heavily on is um, my likability and, and apparent trustworthiness, which <laughs> I would say, <laughs> which I would say I am trustworthy. But nonetheless, I often will say to people. I know I seem likeable and trustworthy, but you have to understand that I'm a journalist and I'm here for your story. Oh, so you actually put a little card. I actually of, yeah. flag it because then well, I think that makes me seem more likeable and trustworthy. Oh, my and God, then. you're appalling. That's just... That's so reprehensible. It's very awful.
1: God, I thought but I was I'm a not, jerk
0: for taking them a cake. But Shit. I'm trying... <laughs> <laughs> but I am try- I do try to be honest with people and say to them, this is not an equal transaction, right, because I'm here because I want something from you and, and our interests might align because you might want to share this information for whatever reasons yeah. you have. Yeah. I want the information maybe for different reasons because it's a good story yeah. or because mm. it, it is a um, scoop for my program. Yeah. Um, and so you have to think about your interests and, you know. And because I'll- my interests aren't to protect you. And I'll, I'll yeah. often throw other, ge- if I'm trying to get them ahead of other people, I'll throw without knowing naming the mother journos under the bus by oh. going, by going and look, not everyone is going to be as transparent with you about that. And I am being transparent with wow. you that I'm here to get a story. Um, and so, you know, if people are telling you they're doing it to help you, just don't believe them because you know, they're not. They're doing it for a story. So I try hard to be very transparent about the process. Oh, my God. Um, but, you know, and I think that that is honest, but I acknowledge as well that it is on some level manipulative. Sure. But it's pretty it's pretty great. I mean, I'd totally. Fall it's also for it. it's risky as well because you know. Have you ever
1: had anyone just say, "Oh my god, I'm looking for somebody to feather bed me. See you later." <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be lied to in a comforting way. I
0: think I and mean, shocked it's, later. <laughs> it's an interesting. <laughs> it's interesting that it depends on the person because. If it's somebody who's got experience with the media or they have, you know, yeah. high level advisors or whatever, they tend to be making a very calculated decision often sure. then, right? Yeah. So they I, they don't even need me to tell them yeah. that it's a transactional process yeah. and they will decide, oh, I'm going with, you know, a current affair because I mm. want to speak to that audience or mm. I'm going with so-and-so because I have a personal relationship with them or yeah. whatever, Um if it's somebody who's uh, had no experience with the media and they're more sort of, you know, just have found themselves at the Mm. end of a story, I think that that can be more... I think they are trying to get a sense of who can they trust. And I'll often say to people as well, why why are you contemplating doing an interview? Like, you tell me what you're hoping to get out of it Mm. and I'll tell you if that is the kind of thing that makes my show work for you. I think the other thing that these days, you know, frankly, is... Very advantageous for me is that a lot of people already feel like they know yeah. me. Yeah. And so that is a big benefit in terms of they will at least agree to talk to me or they feel straight away like they trust me. Um, and I try really hard to not, you know, breach people's trust. That's why I try to be super honest about, well, this is what's going to happen and this is how it will play out. And if you don't want, you know, this kind of attention, then, you know, hmm. going on national television may not be for you or, you know.
1: Do you think that there is an expectation? now that, you know, um, I mean, this idea that Malcolm criticises that, you know, to some extent, a journalist may let things go or, you know, continue a conversation without challenging things um, in order to extract further confidences. I mean, like, I often think um, I get, you know, I still get a lot of like blowback for that series Kitchen Cabinet oh, yeah. from like a narrow quarter of people who say, oh, my God, why, you know, you sit down with somebody for a meal and you don't, you're not, you know, you, you haven't gone them about their, you know, mismanagement of this portfolio or their treatment of, you know, this person or whatever. And I kind of, it's interesting because I feel like that's a, um, like this expectation that an interview needs to like kind of, square off every malfeasance that a person has ever committed is like a really increasing, you know, kind of analysis. I think, you know, my view has always been that people who watch interviews aren't dumb, you know. They make observations about people depending on what they're shown, right? And like when you give someone an opportunity to talk sort of on their own terms, the stuff that they choose to talk about is actually really intriguing i think but i don't know maybe also
0: no i think that's right because also um a show like say kitchen cabinet versus a show like Seven Thirty. what in an interview that i do it's a straight with a politician we're talking about it's mm. a straight accountability interview and i have limited time mm. and so i am doing what you're talking about which that's is why you're a rude interrupting bitch <laughs> exactly i'm constantly trying to hold them to account for decisions yeah. they've made Kitchen Cabinet is trying to go below that because those kind of interviews exist in, like, lots of spaces. What you're trying to show is what motivates this person and what drives them to make the kind of decisions that they perhaps Mm. make. So you're not operating at that superficial level of why did you make this decision? You're trying to expose what are their fundamental drivers and their fundamental values and who is the person they are Mm. so that then when we see them in the public space and the way they behave or the decisions they make, you bring some broader... Context to it. I think that's like also to just pull it back to the um, therapy theme. Like you said, the stuff they choose to talk about is revealing. Well, that's the same with obviously the process of psychotherapy. I, I was, know, yeah. I was going to say before um, the Janet Malcolm book put me back into re watching a show called In Treatment. Oh
1: so I watched a little bit of that show once when I was staying with my brother and sister in law in. Um, Shanghai and I so I had this clear recollection of just we started watching it and then we just couldn't stop watching it yeah. it's so fascinating and for me it was the first show I'd ever seen where a um, where television could somehow depict a life of the mind yeah and that a show that is seriously the same shot for half yes. an hour could be
0: such gripping television in the same room. I mean, it's mm. like a play because it never, it never. It's all dialogue. Yep. There's next to no action. Um, it's all dialogue and it's all in the one room. There's very few scenes in season one that leave mm. his office. Um, also plus Gabriel Byrne. Just, oh my I god, I could look at that man indefinitely. I think we, we did talk about this show. I think really in an early episode of the podcast, but it was interesting to me to rewatch it because I loved it as well when I first watched it. For anyone who hasn't watched it, it's structured in five episode blocks, and it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. There's a Monday client, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and on Friday he goes to visit his own therapist and he downloads about his own week and his own life. So good. Sometimes shares his private thoughts about the patients because when you're watching the other four episodes – he's just fulfilling the role of the therapist and asking questions and responding to what they raise and so you never really have a sense of what he's thinking. So <laughs> after it builds, idea. It, it is and after a while it builds you are just dying to get to that Friday episode because you want to know what's going on in his head. But um, re-watching it I was thinking I wonder if I'll like this as much you know the second time sort of knowing what happens and oh my god it's just absolutely brilliant. Okay, Gabrielle well, Burns brilliant. I feel like I didn't actually finish I, I, it's, I
1: possibly didn't finish watching the series. The, the series so
0: I'd I, recommend it's quite cerebral because mm. it's so dialogue heavy and as you say it's sort of depicting the life of the mind. And so it's quite it's not like um an easy, it's not like Girls Five Ever. It's <laughs> it was requiring a fair bit of concentration, but um it's just superb and the people in that season one, the people who it's a it's a young woman who's having transference issues who thinks that she's in love with Gabrielle Byrne. Yeah. The second one is a fighter pilot who's been on a drone mission who's dropped a drone and it's killed a heap of civilians. Also in love with Gabriel Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> the third one is a young female gymnast, who appear, like a teenager, who appears to have suicidal tendencies, who's played by an Australian actress actress called Mia Vosikovka, I think her name is. Anyway, she's superb. The, th- the The fourth day is um, a couple who's in marriage counselling, um, and then Diane Weist is his therapist on the Friday. Oh my god, Diane Weist, so good! And they have a long, long history where he had seen yeah. her for therapy years earlier, and they had a kind of falling out. And now he's gone back to her, and it's just—it's very, 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 very good. I um, have, I mean, have you um, had any time for watching TV at the moment? Because um, you're deep in the weeds of your
1: show. Ah, oh, um, yes. Oh my gosh, news on that. Um, but before we depart psychoanalysis also just there's a podcast um by esther perel called oh yeah where should we begin which is definitely yeah. in this vein i mean it's um um it's basically the audio of a therapist talking to um couples it's mainly about things going wrong in couples it's yeah just, right. it's really interesting i, yeah, I agree. Listen I to many good. of them but um it's if you're into this sort of genre it's kind of like it's a bit of free therapy
0: too i listened to a few but also i found it a bit like in treatment uh, it it Takes a fair bit of emotional and mental concentration, true, so true. it's a bit draining.
1: And I sort of really, I slightly miss the visuals as well. I don't know why, because it's just like uh, you know zoom. So anyway, Gabriel they, giving everybody there. a heart attack. Um, oh yes, no doubt. Um, so yes, exciting news is that uh, we've finally finished making that. Um. Series on women politics that I've been doing for about a year. It feels like ages, yeah. Misrepresented. It's called Misrepresented, yeah. So because it's this year is the hundred year anniversary of the arrival of the first woman into an Australian Parliament. That was Edith Cowan in oh. 1921, um, and she, you know, can't imagine what how freaky life was for that woman. I mean, she had a freaky life anyway. She was um, her mother died in childbirth. Um, and then her father murdered her stepmother and then was executed for the crime. So she was Mm. orphaned in the most insanely, you know, dreadful way in her teenage years. And then she got married, had kids, became kind of like a real stalwart of the community, activist for women's and children's rights, and then got elected to parliament as the first woman to do so in 1921. And, you know, she was... um, Entered this weird world, you know. There weren't toilets for her in the building. She had to make home for a wee. <laughs> she was um, <laughs> she was like her maiden speech, which is supposed to be according to the Westminster tradition, listened to in silence. She was heckled, Ugh. you know, interrupted, and she just like she was just a gold lady. Anyway, um, I've been meaning for years to make a documentary series this year looking at, you know, what the experience of parliament is like for women. So we've kind of, even despite COVID, it was like a, you know, five-dimensional Jenga game, but like <laughs> we managed to get around and interview, you know, like the first female prime minister, the first female foreign minister, defence minister, the first woman to serve in both houses, you know, the first, you know, woman to answer questions in the floor of um, House of Reps and so on and so forth. But it's, so it's this kind of like, the series is like it's kind of what women talk about in parliament in politics behind closed doors, right. basically. Yeah. And what the experience is like of walking into a system that still is pretty much designed for men. Yeah. And the ways that they get round it and the things that they all agree on and then the things that they disagree on. It's really yeah. It, it must was...
0: be exhausting to operate in that world. I mean, lots of worlds, you know, the whole world is sort of designed basically for men to be in power, but certain occupations yep. ram that home more than others and politics is right up there.
1: The thing that I've really reflected on this year is just and talking to all these women and seeing, it's the mental load that they have all the time because yeah. it's for them it's not a question and like I think this is why I think sometimes men in politics find it a bit difficult to compute is they don't have to really do the same jumping through hoops that lots of women have to, yeah. walking into a room, checking out how many dudes there are and how many women like working out how to get their ideas listened to and taken up because they don't have the same assumption um, of, you know, being allowed to be ambitious, being allowed to, you know, have ideas. You know, there's still these sort of really interesting um, just roadblocks in the system that kind of still invisibly operate against women I mean decreasingly so I must say um but I just thought it was worth while all of these women who are still firsts are sort of still alive yeah you know, that's amazing isn't to it? kind of get together a bit of an archive of what that's been like because I think it's been super difficult and there are some things that have got better over the years but there are some things also that have got really weirdly harder and I um Sadly, we missed out on interviewing Susan Ryan by a couple of days. Like, it's just unbelievable. She died very suddenly a couple of days before we were due to interview her. Um, I do have an audio interview that I did with her, but, like, One of the things that she said that really struck me was she thought that it was harder these days for younger women in politics, particularly single young women, because, you know, when she was the only woman in the Hawke cabinet, she was also a single mother. Like she said, at least I could go out and go out with people and have dinner without people on their smartphones, you know, papping me or rumours about who I was shagging or whatever, which I think does happen, you know, quite extensively to young single women in the parliament. So Mm. that's, you know a really weird and gross thing that has become harder i think.
0: Yeah, I bumped into um Natasha Stott spoiler the other day. Mm. I'm sure
1: you've probably interviewed her. Mm-hmm. Yes, piece. yeah, she's um, on the series.
0: Yeah, and I was just thinking remembering um back to that era when she was elected yeah. and how I mean there was just so much attention on her being yeah. a young woman. Just mm. the fact of her being a young woman attracted so much attention.
1: Well, um, even when she I mean she was sort of dating various people and she said it was just Unbelievably, like the scrutiny and the speculation about who she was sleeping with, was mad. She said it really changed when she got married, and then and the, it's not like the scrutiny went away. It then became when's she going to have a baby?
0: Oh yeah. And then
1: so she was saying there was some she was there was some reporter on some newspaper that was on the Natasha pregnancy beat, you know. <laughs> But that, you know, Sarah Hansen-Young also said that um, her marital status really made a huge difference to what happened in the Senate to her. She says that because um, she arrived in Parliament with like a, a toddler, like a, even mm. smaller than a toddler, and she was married and then um, the marriage disintegrated a, like a short period into um, her Senate stint Um and the moment that she became um, separated from her partner, she said that all of this stuff started like um, sort of rumours and speculation about who she was having an affair with or who she was sleeping with and just actually got to a point over a couple of years where she memorably had to initiate litigation mm. against um, David Lionhelm for you know carrying on about her alleged sexual activity. Um, it's weird and I think one of the big takeouts from this year too has been, you know, the, the really significant demonstration that the Sex Discrimination Act, which was incidentally, you know, absolutely bulldozed through that parliament by Susan Ryan, who was the only woman in the Hawke Cabinet at the time. Imagine that. Like, mm. um, And it was hard to get through. Um, that, that Sex Discrimination Act didn't apply to women working in the parliament and mm. still hasn't up until yeah, this amazing, year. It's it? incredible. And, in fact, look, we've done a podcast as well um, to go with the series just because um, it's there's so much stuff. And so I'm doing a podcast with Steph Tisdall who's this um, young comedian. She's, like, very smart, funny, f- interesting good person and because I, I wanted to sort of talk to a younger woman about all this stuff because I think lots of young women will be freaked out about all the things that these women had to put up with but one and you, you'll you'll get to hear it in the podcast which actually we're dumping all of the episodes and all of the podcast episodes on July the 13th so you can binge everything um, on that day um, I had I won't say who it is you'll find out in the podcast but there's a woman who was in the Senate when the Sex Discrimination Act was going through and she tells us this extraordinary story of being sexually assaulted by a colleague. She didn't tell anyone um, and she only tells us because she heard Brittany Higgins telling her story, Mm. Um, you know, decades and decades and decades later. But she was legislating the Sex Discrimination Act at the time and did not recognise what was happening to her as sexual harassment. Like Mm. it's, yeah, Interesting. Yeah.
0: Anyway, well, I could you for hours about this with very my am looking forward <laughs> to um, seeing it. Um, yeah. But uh, all right, let's, before we run out of time, um, wrap up a couple of other little things that I wanted to tell you about. So I had a bit of a nostalgic cook this week where um, – I keep a recipe book with handwritten recipes in it and I've had it yeah. since about nineteen ninety-six. Um, I'm into like a different volume now, but this is my old one. The and Lysail's it's such a cookbook. great it's such a great little time capsule because I've often written next to recipes who the recipe was from and what yeah. year it was from. And do you <laughs> do you butcher all of the recipes? Like I do, yeah. Do you I make do. a small but insulting or oh, it's like... just for you. Mm, I ended up to okay. you.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, the, anyway, this would be one, delicious with bacon.
0: <laughs> there was one one of the very first recipes in there, um, it's called Caribbean chicken. And it remembers it reminded me when I first moved out of home in, I can't remember if it was 1994 or 1995, I think it was 1995, um, I lived with this girl Karen in Ashgrove in Brisbane and we had this recipe that we used to always make called caravan chicken and mm-hmm. I we used to love it and think it was delicious and I saw it there and I thought, <laughs> you know what, I'm going to make that again just to see is it actually delicious or is it the sort of thing you think is delicious when you move out of home when right. you're 21. It was actually quite tasty. So it's basically chicken thighs sprinkled with paprika. Mm-hmm. Put them under the grill so they get a little bit golden and then you stick them in a saucepan and there's a sort of sauce that they then sort of stew in. It's um lime juice, um, coconut milk, a can so- of cream of mushroom soup <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> mango chutney, um, some chilli, some garlic. I think that's about it. Um, And then it just sort of like bubbles around in that for a while and gets sort of nice and soft. And it's really tasty. It does have that sort of... I don't know how to describe it other than like Caribbean jerk kind of flavour. Right. Um, anyway, I've just been having it with rice and it's quite tasty. But right, you're back but on you, the But, you're but back, back, right back into Queensland, 1995. you ever 95? make apricot chicken? Remember I'd that so stuff? funny that. you raised that. I was about to say it's the kind of thing that makes you think of like apricot chicken.
1: Wow. Yeah. So that was, what was that? That was like a can of apricot nectar. Yeah. This is like when can cookery was like yep. a can of this, can of that. Totally. And a packet,
0: if I'm not mistaken, of French onion soup mix. Yep, that's can right. Can you still get that stuff? I'm sure you can, because there'd be a whole generation of people that probably still cook like that.
1: Would anyone ever have used that stuff to make French onion soup? It just seems to be something that you no. use to make something else entirely. Oh, I like nearly just
0: made French onion soup this week, too. My I God. Just, I, not out of a
1: packet, but I do love it. My God, that is a great thing to make. It particularly is. if you're confined to your home, yes. which, you know, many people are, yes. um, it's... It's, it's super easy too, right? You just like finely slice about eight onions and yeah. then you just sweat them down yeah. in butter for like hours. Yep. Here's the thing that really shits me about French onion soup recipes. I've never met one that is accurate about how many, about how long it takes oh. to get the onions to that caramelised dark Literally
0: drum. every recipe I've ever done that needs caramelised onions. I just, I don't trust Absolute it at all. Bullshit. I don't trust it. Yep. Nonsense. What is, yeah. it? is it an international chef conspiracy? I don't know, but I've never, they always go, just give it, you know, eight Eight minutes and I'll be done like absolutely
1: no. in no universe yeah, does that ever happen. Hard agree. I
0: reckon it takes
1: like an hour at least. Absolutely. And agree. you're always just nervously poking at it, thinking,
0: why aren't you I constantly the wearing them as well? Yeah. So it's just yeah, it's uh no, it takes you've got to factor in a lot longer for that.
1: We're um, not these these liars.
0: <laughs> I think we I'm should a- publish
1: an honest <laughs> French onion soup recipe.
0: Like I made this uh last year. Um, there was a restaurant, I think it might be closed now, at Glebe called The Boathouse at Blackwater Bay. Oh, yeah. And their famous dish was this fish pie. Right. And the, it, the recipe had been published oh, online the or something. Oh, snap the snapper pie with the
1: smoked snapper tomatoes. tomatoes. <laughs> My God, that is a delicious dish.
0: Um, anyway, I made it. I had the recipe from somewhere and I made it at home. And it involved onions. And mm. it was like hours and hours and hours to get the onions to the stage yeah. that you wanted them to be at before you then whacked the whole rest of it in. But by Christ, it was delicious. God,
1: I just, I love your hate recipe with, like, your hate <laughs> relationship. Like, what was that fantastic raspberry um, oh, trifle, the trifle that, yeah. Yeah, that's, that you've that's made a Gian few
0: That's um, yeah, that's raspberry and pistachio trifle. It's the
1: it's, world's most delicious trifle. But,
0: like, oh, I dread beautiful.
1: every time you make it because you're just on the text <laughs> bitching and moaning about how much the raspberries cost. and like blah, 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 blah. And blather. the pistachio. And face. then the pistachio. And the kirsch. Face.
0: I had to buy a whole bottle of Kirsch and I've used one cupful of it, but if I don't get it, it's not gonna have the right flavour. <laughs> yeah, it does wow. that sends me over the edge. But then every time I make it for somebody, they're like well, this is the most delicious thing I've ever eaten in my it life. Is, it and, is, and it the, is absurdly delicious. the praise delicious. and adoration of my friends keeps me going back to it. Wow. <laughs> you are a sick woman. So you need some treatment. So, yes, yeah, so I was doing a bit, of, um, a bit of that. And then I was doing a bit of watching of uh, my youngest child and I. There's a couple of shows on ABC I view at the moment. One's called The Wonderful World of Kittens and one's called The Wonderful World of Puppies. Oh and we've been watching God. The Wonderful World of Kittens. And it's just, it's so, it's... Nothing it's, bad happens to the kittens, right? No. And it's not, frankly, particularly well done, but it's okay. just... You just spend the whole time just going, oh, he's just so cute. Oh, he's just so cute. And then we talk about which is our favourite kitten and, you know, it's a good thing to watch with your kids except oh, now right. you'll be unsurprised to know that that child every night gets into yeah. my bed and goes, Let's can we watch just kittens. watch The Wonderful World of Kittens together? Please, Mummy, Yeah, you've please. opened up
1: the door a crack. That kid's never getting out of your bed with exactly. kittens. Yeah, I, exactly. Um, I did watch a fantastic... YouTube assemblage of um, the fainting goat. You know, that group, <laughs> yeah. that brand of goat that um, just yes. in, a, in what seems to be a, just a profound evolutionary, evolutionary misadventure <laughs> passes out <laughs> with stress every time it gets frightened. So, of course, the internet is full of bastards who've got this breed of goat. They're, it's oh. American. Um, sort of jumping out from behind, you know, bushes at these goats and they immediately crumple to the ground. Oh. I mean, it's it's look, it should be prosecuted, frankly, but it's also visually it quite amusing. Um and the goats are unharmed, <laughs> as far as I know. Um while we're talking about um quickly while we're talking about watching things with kids, um, yes. I've been watching the greatest series. Um it's on Disney Plus. It's called yeah. The Mysterious Benedict Society. Yeah. Now, um my daughter, when she was, I think about sort of eight or nine read this series of books and became completely obsessed with it. Now, it's this sort of standard, you know, group of child heroes, where are their parents, who knows kind of thing. Oh, yeah, love that. Um, And they are, are, I think, mainly orphans um, and they're gathered together under the supervision of this, you know, kind of... Um, sort of spy lord who's, you know, and they're all brilliant in a set in a different way. They've all got brilliant individual skills. Um, Not superpowers, just skills. Oh, yeah, they're just really smart or okay. they're really, you know. Okay, handy um, or whatever. Yeah, one of them carries a bucket that's full of handy things. right can always, like, just jerry-rig her way out of oh, situations awesome. and whatever. And um, they become eligible for membership of the Mysterious Benedict Society by, by means of this initial series of tests and examinations, all of which they finally, they kind of individually find their way through. Anyway, it's kooky, like the um, Mr. Benedict, who's the, you know, kind of Svengali, um, uh, he has narcolepsy, so he'll just sort of like fall asleep at moments of stress. Like, it's there's lots of kook in it. It's And the series is just beautiful. It's kind of like... It's it's sort of like, um, you know, Harry Potter or, you know, any kind of kids' society meets Wes Anderson because it's, it's kooky and brilliantly shot and and the central spy guy is played by Tony Hale.
0: Oh! oh. oh. Save the best for last.
1: Yeah, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> right. we started watching it and the whole family's just hooked because it oh, starts off at the orphanage cute. and, you know, the kid goes for the exam to, you know, Enter this mysterious academy and. Away oh, you that go. sounds great! Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. it's pretty good. I'm a
0: little bit in love with Tony Hale.
1: Look, who wouldn't be? Yeah, I just want him following me around, reminding me <laughs> of what people's names are. And Tony Hale was, of course, a part, he's been in everything, um, but he was Gary the Body Man in Veep and, and
0: Buster in Arrested Development. Oh God, he's just yeah. too good. I yeah. love him. Okay, let's get out of here. All right.